Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the official Tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray, and we are here with the man, the myth, the legend, California boy, surfer dude, running a nonprofit, commentator, coach to men and women, uh world team tennis commentator slash narrator got to find a way to make it all exciting uh mark lucero welcome to the show brother dude come out i've been uh anxiously awaiting the invitation to your show i've seen it grow and uh yeah i'm excited to be here thanks for having me well you know it's this long list brother you know you <laughs> you have to wait your turn <laughs> so so you and i met probably seven years ago in carson and I think you were working with Shelby at the time. Yeah. Uh, and I remember that was sort of like my first introduction to girls practicing with girls and like this uneasy, weird, unnecessary, competitive vibe across the net when we're just like having free season. Tell me, well, tell me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well, the other thing, which you know the the listeners should know is that Sloan and Shelby were doing fitness for two hours before they saw us. So by the time <laughs> we got them, they're like tired and hungry and like you know like I would say hangry. And so we get yeah. them out there. We're trying to get them to work together. And you know like one of them or not maybe both are like spraying balls. And then you know one's like you know she's not going to hit the ball right to me. And, <laughs> <laughs> and and both of us are like we just need to make this hour a good hour and yeah. then we're like you know even if you're not feeling good try to make it good for the other person and okay. uh <laughs> you know it's understanding you know what i think what your players are going through at that point in the preseason and knowing too that you know we both knew like the practices weren't going to be great but if they had good attitudes they could probably get something out of it and then you know make it good too for the other person they're trying to practice with but yeah never easy when you're you know doing that practice in that part of the year <laughs> It's kind of like, yeah, we just like, neither one of us wants to be here. This is like day five of this week. My coach is getting on my nerves. <laughs> Chang was just in the gym getting on our nerves, you know. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Over preseason in week one, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. And they like, may, they right, maybe drink this gross that? shake on the way out of there. Oh, yeah. With all these pills. I'm like, what kind of pills are you taking, bro? Like, what are they putting in those shakes? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> oh, my uh, God. So, so tell me about your, tell us and the listeners uh, about your introduction into tennis. Man, like uh, it was something that one summer I was with some friends of mine from school and, you know, we played soccer and basketball and the other sports. And just one summer I kind of had this thing, like I said, I wanted to play tennis and a bunch of my friends from school, they all wanted to do the same thing. So we started doing a, a like a group clinic uh, once a week together. I think there were my brother and then three other friends of mine. So we, there were five of us doing like a group lesson once a week. And 
you know, I started liking it and, but, you know, but it wasn't, it wasn't like a great, like high performance thing. It was just something that was fun that I did with my friends. And I gradually started to notice maybe tennis on television. This is like 89. So like Agassi with the long hair was starting to come up and I kind of just got into it and we started doing it more and more. And I still kept kind of kept playing the other team sports, but that was really how I got exposed to it. It was just this, this group thing once a week that I did with my friends. That was it. And it came from me. Well, you know, what's funny you say that is about like a lot of people get their introduction to tennis in private lessons. Right. And, yeah. and I think to me, that's one of the reasons, and you know, you work with juniors as well. That's one of the reasons why I think our retention is so low is because you got one-on-one private lessons standing across the net from a dude that's telling you doing everything wrong, or you can have it where it's like you're with four or five of your friends and you kind of just fucking around. You know what I mean? It's just like two totally different spectrums. And I always encourage people to like find a group of friends. Like if you got a young kid, six, seven years old, find a group of friends, make it once a week and make it more team social to start out. But somehow people still try to make it this, I'm going to start with private lessons thing and the kids that are quitting and you've invested all this money in private lessons already. Well, it's so, it's structured and boring. And what kid likes to do things that are structured and boring? Like kids want to, you know, kids try soccer, basketball, football, whatever, like at school with their friends at lunch or something, or like in a park and then they decide they like it. And then, you know, maybe they get to a point where they start getting some instruction, but it's just something that they do, you know, spontaneously and, and organically and in tennis yeah you're right like tennis is it's just such a like arcane way of introducing the game to to kids and yeah like i agree with you 100 that's a great point that i actually never really thought of yeah dude it's boring i'm gonna stand for an hour he's gonna tell me everything i'm doing is wrong i'm holding the racket wrong my feet are wrong my toss is wrong i can't toss the ball perfectly on the serve because i can't use my non-dominant yeah. hand the whole process is just sort of Right. And the kids just want to hit balls. Like the the kids have to stand there. And like, it's standing's boring. Hitting balls is fun. (laughs) You know, hit two balls, go to the back of the line. Like, that sucks. Yeah. So you're a California boy. And you got obviously good enough to go play at USC. Right. No, I played at Boston College. Oh, BC. BC. Yeah. BC. BC. Yeah. 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 So, um, same colors. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so tell me, like, what, what sort of clicked for you? Because, you know, I messed around with the game when I was seven and probably hated it until I was 12, right? So what sort of clicked with you? What kept you going? Because you and I both know boys in this tennis quit sooner than girls, right? Yeah. Without, like, a push or, you know, something to, like, keep you away from basketball when you're, like, 14 and you're trying to decide tennis or basketball, right? What kept you going? Was it a crazy parent? Was it just, like, a cute girl? What was it? You know, I liked being able to touch the ball all the time. I like being the one who was taking all the swings. Uh, I played soccer. I played soccer like pretty seriously through eighth grade. And I played my freshman year in high school, but that was kind of a fluke. Um, <laughs> my mom told me years later, like, so, so I had stopped playing like organized soccer, like club soccer in eighth grade. I was kind of done with it. And I was going to go towards tennis. And I ended up playing soccer for my school in high school for my freshman year because I wanted to try out, you know, it was a way to like, meet other people at school and just, I want, I still, kind of still wanted to play. And my mom told me years later that my dad only let me try out because he didn't think I was going to make the team because I was done because I had already stopped playing. You know, I was the only kid, I was the only kid who made the soccer team in high school who wasn't playing club soccer anymore. So I ended up playing club soccer. It just became, it became too much because I was, I, I just fell in love with tennis and I was really into it. And I, again, I liked being the only one out there. And, you know, I've always been kind of like a, 
more of a lone wolf guy than like a group guy. And that was just what, what I really liked. And I really liked what I really liked the way it tested me and the way that it kind of challenged me at a young age. I was really into that. Now, tell me about the decision to go to Boston College, because I grew up in a cold weather state and went to Florida, right? Went south to go to college, right? And you went north, right, to play all indoor tennis. Tell me about what college options did you have and why'd you end up choosing BC? Yeah, it was kind of the thing, almost similar to you. Like, I think you always want to try out what you haven't done before or what's new or what's different. And for me, I knew that I wanted, I think I wanted to be in the Northeast. Uh, I looked at a few schools in California, like some in Southern California, like, like a USC, like a Loyola Marymount. Those were schools that kind of came down to the end with me. And then I looked at some schools in the Northeast, like starting like in, in DC on the way up. And there was just something when I visited Boston College, I really liked it. And I had a buddy who was there, who was from San Diego, a year older than me, who was playing on the team. And so we had kind of spoken and then he was like, yeah, it's cool. And I had seen them when they came out to the West Coast and it just felt like it was going to be an adventure of mine. And then that if I didn't like it, I could always, you know, transfer to something more familiar. But I wanted to give that Northeast a shot. And um, it was a similar profile to like the high school that I had gone to. And uh, I just I ended up really I ended up really being happy with my decision. So you have never played on a tour right or or perhaps maybe tried the tour but you know obviously played some, play some futures the writing was on the wall yeah exactly right exactly right you like start playing some 17 year old who like doesn't go to school and like can ball right you know what i mean <laughs> it's like yeah i'm like nah i'm not gonna do something else but you somehow found your way to the top tier of the sport right not even just one way to sport but tell me how you transition from playing at bc Right. Maybe not having like that sort of, you know, top 10 in the world pedigree like Lindsay or somebody like that, but find yourself coaching like great professionals, you know, what I mean, bona fide professionals. Tell me how, how that process goes. Yeah, I, I was very academic. And I think, you know, I, I know with your background, like you're obviously someone who is very academic as well. I think that eventually I made my way from school and then playing briefly and then I was in law school and then I got out of law school. And I needed something to bide my time until I figured out really what I wanted to do. Like, what's the easiest thing you can do with someone like us? Like, oh man, I can coach and like make a little money and just chill and figure out what I really want to do. And then I decided that I, I found that I really loved what I was doing. And then, you know, one thing leads to another and you get out some opportunities. And I think, I think what I've done has been able to sort of apply that academic side with the experiences that I've had in tennis. and then the 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 psychological side that's obviously needed to work with i think we'll work with any athletes not just you know high level ones but of all athletes i I think it's 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 taking the academic approach and applying it to tennis because i think people maybe sometimes don't think that coaching is that involved but obviously you know that it's very involved but taking that academic approach applying it to tennis and i think that's sort of you know enabled me to you know, to give my best shot and to give my best to my players that, that I've been able to work with. 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. So... What are the chances that you're the only coach on tour with a law degree? <laughs> uh, well, I, 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 quit, I quit after the first year of law school. I, I was like, this is not for me. But I, I don't think there's too many that uh, yeah, have gone into uh, law school. I don't think there are too many that took first year, uh, you know, civil procedure like I did. <laughs> <laughs> so, so your first job sort of in pro coaching, was it, did you start as a hitting, hitting partner? Did you start right in as coaching? How did you sort of make that transition? Because I always find it really interesting. Like we'll be at tournaments, we'll be at slams, and all of a sudden we see a new face, right? Because right. it is like a really tight club. I mean, this is like, you want to talk about the good old boys club? This is like the good old boys club. And then right. you see a new face appear. And I always can't help but think, how did they make them what their way onto that team, right? Or whose <laughs> college roommate was he or she, right? Or whose niece is that? You know what I mean? Like, how did they find their way into that camp? So how did you find your way on the tour? You know, I, uh, my first job coaching a, a player was, I worked at Princeton for a few years. I left Princeton and I sort of started to reach out to pretty much everybody I knew that I wanted to work on an individual level with somebody. I wanted to work one-on-one and ideally for me, I thought would be like, you know, a lower ranked pro player. I eventually got an opportunity with someone who was ranked like 500 in the world. And so I did some, you know, I did some weeks with her. And then it was through that, that I eventually got a job with the USTA in Carson. And I started, I was low man, the totem pole. So yes, I would be hitting with whichever pros were coming into town. I would be hitting with them. And, you know, the, the veteran coaches would be the ones who are, you know, running the practices and I'm out there hitting with whatever pros there and I'm soaking everything up. And over the course of a few years with the USTA, um, I think I met enough people and, and met enough players that eventually when I was done with USA, I got an opportunity to work with Jeannie Bouchard. Um, and she was 18 at the time. She just won junior Wimbledon. And that was basically, she was the first person that I worked with on the main tour. And I was that fresh face that people were like, where'd this dude come from? Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like where'd this dude come from? I was like, you know, it was like this huge thing for me. I was like, breaking out in hives because of the anxiety and stress I was feeling because this, this is a new job. I'm like worried about getting fired every week. And, and you got uh, pressure working with Jeannie, right? And the yeah, pressure working and, with a big man. Yeah. She's a, a highly talented prospect. Everyone's like, man, like, you know, like, who are you? Like, blah, blah, blah. And everyone knew her, you know, because of her, you know, her background and her results. And uh, yeah, it was uh, this totally unique, <laughs> this totally unique experience for me. Now, we see a lot of people sort of have, you know, nice, good, secure coaching job, national coaching jobs with USTA. And at one point or another, they like, you know, develop a bond with a player, leave and go full time. Right. Uh, and I always think that's a courageous move because you and I both know that there is no security in coaching professional tennis players. Like every year they just might want to change just for the sake of changing. Right. Um, what, what gave you the courage, right. When you were like, thinking about making a leap, a leap from the USTA to sort of private individual coaching, you know, what was the thought process? I always like looking back on it. If I had to tell somebody, 
I'd say keep your USDA job, right? You know what I mean? It's yeah. Secure, you, got, you got benefits. But what 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 sort of gave you the? What was your thought process in making that jump? Yeah, you know, at the time the USDA was going through a real, um, as the USDA does every so often, like a real like reverse reversing of courses and a, you know a cleaning out of personnel, and they were they had had some financial hardships, and it was this was right after the market had crashed around uh, 2009, 2010, and things were starting to sort of normalize again. Um, the USTA, they laid off a ton of people like myself, like Laura McNeil. Uh, that, that was a whole group that got, you know, cleared out of Carson. So that was like a little, that was a real push that actually turned out to be really good for me because that ended up giving me a bunch of opportunities to work privately and to work individually, which I had kind of known. I want to move that direction because when you go, the, the plus side to, you know, leaving that security is, there's a lot more upside in terms of um, like there's financial upside because, you know, as a, as a national coach, you're getting paid your salary, regardless of, you know, the player, you know, wins or loses. Sometimes you like that because if the player is losing a lot, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that bank account could take a hit, but right. uh, there's, you know, if you have someone who's doing well, or if you have someone who thinks they can do well, there's a, there's a real, you know, you want to maybe want to roll the dice and try to, you know, ride that player and, and make some money. Um, also, you, you know, making your own schedule, you know, having the freedom to travel more if, you know, maybe the federation might want you to stay home, you know, being able to fully devote yourself to that player and really, you know, invest your, your mind, body and spirit, which we all obviously end up doing. Um, you just have a little more freedom. And it actually ended up being a great thing, you know, for me that I went through that with USDA. And then, you know, I got end up getting all these opportunities that, you know, probably might not have happened. So. So you talked about being a sponge, right? And being a national USDA coach, but having a chance to be on a court with coaches. Uh, I mean, I know some of those coaches I've, you know, sort of, I've never worked for the USDA, but I've spent a lot of time in Carson alongside, you know, some of those guys. Who was the best strategist of that group of guys that, you know, we know work USDA? Or just Roger Smith. Roger Smith. I, I thought Roger, I thought, <laughs> I thought Roger tactically was, was very good. And, um, you know, just being around him and like sort of listening to him break down players. I, I thought tactically he was very good. I would say, um, I mean, to be honest, Lori McNeil, you know, listening to her talk about playing, <laughs> playing people with good forehands and only slice on the backhand. There was one girl that was giving this girl that I used to coach all kinds of problems and, Laura was, you know, telling me like when I played Steffi, I played this, you know, such and such way because she actually wanted you to do, you know, to attack this part of the court instead of that part. And I'm like, God, like, you're right. Like I, you know, I was like telling this player to play one way because that's the way I think I would have played a person like that. And then Lori is like, telling me to flip it because this is what worked against Steffi. I'm like, there aren't many places you can go to that you hear that. Like, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> your local club, not having some coach there who, you know, put a beat down on Steffi because she played her a certain <laughs> way. So, um, but yeah, like people like Roger and Lori and then, you know, being around someone like a Tom Gullickson talking about, you know, the way he would relate to players during Davis cup and what they needed to hear during competition, like that stuff. Um, it, for me as a young coach, trying to learn my way and get better. And it, it was invaluable. You know, it, it was really, it was an incredible experience for me. So who was the best technician? I think I, I really like David Roditi, the way he broke down strokes for young kids. For me, that really made, it made a lot of sense. Um, I saw Ray Ruffles teach the backhand slice, which is still is a way that I would teach someone who doesn't know how to hit a slice. Um, I think those two really stood out. Like particularly Ray with the slice was like, you know, <laughs> it, it was like a proper old school Aussie slice. 
<laughs> oh, yeah, those Aussies famous for that chip. That good old Renee <laughs> yeah. Stubb, Ash Barty. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> that chip. Yeah. So you will go on and you have a chance to coach Shelby Rogers, who always one of the best Americans, always capable of some great wins, right? Always super professional as well, right? Um, and then you go on to coach Stevie Johnson. What, what, what do you think the difference is? You know, people always say to me, because I've only coached girls at the tour level, right? And I would say, oh, would you ever coach a man? I'm like, yeah, I coach a man. I say it's way harder, right? Um, but, you know, coaching girls also has its challenges. What would you say is the biggest difference between coaching women and coaching? You know, uh, tactically, I, I think it's, I think you sort of have to understand the nuances and there are certain plays that work on the women's tour that don't work out on the men's. And I think vice versa. I, I think like in the men's, you have to be aware if you like, like in the women's, like a lot of times, you know, if you get the ball off the court, you're in a pretty good position, right? Like a lot, like with the women, a lot of times their problem is they play too much through the court and they wonder why the other person like starting to hit the ball. Well, you know, um, with the, with the guys, if you get the ball going off the court and you're all of a sudden really vulnerable because you've opened up a bunch of angles and these guys can move so well, and they can shape the ball so much that like often you want to keep the ball through the court because, you know, the angle you're getting back is, you know, it's a much more narrow um, angle. So just understanding tactics, I think also like, you know, in the guys, you're going to lose a lot more matches when your player played pretty well, just because they couldn't convert the two break points they had um, with the women's. I think you can plan on your tactics being pretty effective on nearly every point of the match because just because there's so many fewer points that are ended with just after a serve. And I actually appreciate, I actually really liked working on the women's side for that sense, because I knew that if my tactics were good, like probably going to get W today, you know, regardless of who you're playing. Um, but the guy is like, you know, our tactics could be great, but you know, I always feel that on the women's game, a, the, you have a long, you have the points develop, right? You spend a lot more points within like the five to eight range, right? You can kind of like develop the point. Uh, I feel like even with the on-court coaching, there's a lot more opportunity for coaches to have an impact on the match yes. because of tactics and, you know, exploiting people's movement, right? And on the guy side, you always felt like there was very little margin of error. And if the guy was serving big and you don't, you didn't convert on one or two break points and he does convert on one or two break points, even having played your best match, you're done. Yeah. And so, you know, just like you talked about, like in general, you know, one of the biggest differences, if a woman, if you get a woman moving right out to those wings, you pretty much got her hurt. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. Get a guy moving out there and you make it, like overly athletic and you also open up yourself to have to be athletic, right. And sort of like defend the angle. So I always thought that that was like one of the biggest differences, but also why, you know, I sort of enjoy coaching the girls because I felt like if I got it right the night before, tactically, we would have a chance to win. Right. You know what I mean? hundred percent. You play big John Isner. It's like, bro, just, you know, step back eight feet, you know, try to like guess a couple of times on the service and get yeah, like start guessing a hundred percent. Um, one of the things from the women's that the game that I thought was really, you know, that's really effective and we're seeing more and more is 
you know, guys who can hit the back end of the line. I, I think you see that, like, I thought it was really, it was something that I tried to get, you know, Shelby to do a lot, you know, was hit her back end of the line early. And that was something that I sort of came over here and, and it was telling Steve last year earlier, even before the pandemic, like, like, Hey, once in a while, we just got to hit the back end of the line once in a while, like either if it's slice or coming over it, whatever, but just hit the ball up the line. Cause you get the guy, you know, away from that place. They want to be like that ad corner where they're pumping forehands. You know, it's something Novak does so well. It's something like some of these best, these top guys make really do well. And it really hurts people. Um, Did you just ask Steve Johnson to come over the backhand? Yeah, yeah, you got to once in a while, you know. <laughs> what, one out of ten. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good ratio. I'm happy with that. I'm, I'm good. But just once in a while, you know. Once in a while. So I think, like, as coaches, you have, like, some most memorable ma- memorable matches, good or bad. One where you're like, man, this, is, this was a great match. It was great to be a part of this match and come out on top. And you also have those matches where you just solely, you slowly saw your bonus evaporate. Since you've had the chance to coach numerous players, can you give me like most memorable matches of each player, positive or negative? <laughs> I, um, and I'll give you gosh. some exchange. In exchange. <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but I, sometimes I've found myself so in the moment where it's been really hard to enjoy the good ones. I mean, you've had some incredible rides. I mean, I, you know, the, the, the U.S. Open run, obviously, I, like just before I answer a question, did you enjoy that? Or were you like so in it and stressed and planning for the next one? Like after the, the current win, planning for the next one, like that you couldn't enjoy it or did you, and did you enjoy it? No, I didn't enjoy it. I mean, because I think what happens is in the process of getting it right, right. Which is hard to do. It's hard to get it right for two weeks, right. From the right practice partner, the right practice time, the right yep. set of tactics, the right draw, the right meals, all types of stuff, right? In the yep. process of getting it right, it becomes very stressful, right? And then the closer you get, because as a coach, you can impact a lot of the matches on the women's tour, you're so stressed out so you don't fuck it up, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Not even trying to win, just trying to not fuck it up. <laughs> yeah, you're trying, yeah, it's like you got, a, you got a great player with great talent and a workable draw. How do you... Okay not say the one because one wrong tactic you could fuck it up right so um i didn't enjoy it because i was so locked in right i remember after every match every win honestly coming home or coming to the hotel room and like sitting under the shower like sitting on the floor we were staying at the london hotel right Uh sitting on the floor of the shower with the water just running over me like emotionally exhausted. Yeah. Right. Bone, bone blown like, up and you can't even look at it. Right. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Just emotionally exhausted. And then you find yourself trying to get ready for the next match. Right. Trying to see who won, who's the next match, what happened, what were the stats, what the thing. So I was emotionally exhausted. And I think that. My biggest regret is because I was so locked in. I didn't, number one, enjoy it. Number two, I didn't allow or, or didn't allow others around me to also enjoy it, right? You know, like people who have helped me in my career, unrelated to me being a pro coach, but whether it's people in Chicago or my family members or whatever, I didn't want them to come to New York because I didn't want them to fuck it up. You know what I'm right. saying? 
Yeah. And so I, I found myself missing an opportunity to bring others on this ride, mm. right? That you may not ever ride again. Yeah. You know what I mean? Get to ride yeah. on it. Yeah. So I, I definitely, I, I missed an opportunity to enjoy it. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, I don't know advice to other good coaches is to find a way to do the work without messing it up, right? Or enjoy yeah. it without messing it up, whether it's a good dinner or, you know, you know, having people come in and experience it or, or, you know, whatever it is, right? Because you don't want anybody coming in and messing up the routine, messing up the vibe at dinner, all that other stuff, or even distracting you. Well, now you have to give your energy to somebody else when you've got this rare opportunity with a workable draw, a healthy athlete, an athlete that's in a great emotional space, like sort of everything sort of working. Um, and so now it, it was actually hard to enjoy. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I, I believe it. I believe it. I, you know, I, 2016, like Shelby was the last person in the French. She was ranked 108 and she made, you know, this run into the quarters and, you know, and I didn't probably enjoy a minute of it. Like maybe one round that was an easy match um, with uh, God, whoever she, she played Visnina in the second round. That was like maybe the only easy match. And, but the whole time, like it was just, it was emotionally exhausting for me. And the like, same thing, like after every match, like the phone's blowing up, can't even look at it. just want to throw it. I can't like bear to be near it. Like I'm in the hotel, like, you know, crushing video for the next match. Like don't want to talk to anybody. And then all I can remember from the whole thing is Mugarusa hit a second serve on break point to the T, which I knew was going to happen. And it was a service winner. And, and like, that's, oh. <laughs> that's literally the only thing I remember, like that I can remember clearly from that, like two weeks in Paris, you know, um, other than obviously like, you know, when Shelby won the fourth round and was talking to Bartoli on court and was saying how she didn't believe, you know, she wasn't sure if she ever believed that she could do something like that. And, and that part was like incredible to see, you know, when you see someone who's achieved something that they didn't think they could do, like it is amazing. But from my point of view, like, you know, I remember that one specific point in the quarterfinals, like, which would have been to go up five, four and serve for the first set to go into the semis, but, you know, but, um, let me ask yeah, you, were so you thinking, were you thinking, I, I definitely told you the serve was going to go there. Or were you thinking, damn, I should have told her that the serve was going to go there in that situation? <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you offline what I was thinking in that moment. But uh, <laughs> no, I, you know, I, you just, you, you see the, you see the opportunities when they come up and, and it's very easy when you're sitting off the court in our chair, it's very, it's very easy to see those opportunities for what they are. I think it's much more difficult when you're on the court out there playing and thinking of so many different things. It's much more, it's much more difficult, I think, to recognize them, but it's very easy from our seat <laughs> to see what to do and to know, you know, when these things are coming up. And um, that's the one thing that like, it gets very difficult. And I always try to remember like how, you know, no one's out there trying to mess it up, you know? Right, right. Everybody's out there doing their best. <laughs> yeah. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. So Stevie's also been a part of some great matches. Can you, can you give me one? Most memorable match, win or, win or lose with Stevie? Yeah, this year, um, 
I mean, he's had a couple of matches. He had a couple of matches last year with Jack Sock. They were like just crazy matches with the, the way those guys are playing. But this year in the second round of the French, he was playing um, a Brazilian guy, Thiago uh, Montero, who is like rough on clay. Lefty, like the guy, st- you know, he returns serve on the tarp near the fence. And uh, Steve was playing him and Steve was losing to this guy. I think Steve, Steve was down two sets. Maybe the first round he was down two sets with Francis. Maybe he was like, he was always down a set in this match with Montero and he was playing him when they were, they had the curfew at 9 PM uh, for COVID because COVID right. <laughs> COVID stops at 9 PM. So, right, um, right. Anyway, so, <laughs> so the curfew, so all the fans got to leave. Uh, <laughs> so it ended up being him playing this Brazilian guy in a five set match, like on court 15 and the way back in Paris, you know, on the other side of uh, Suzanne Longland and I'm there the other dudes, two coaches are there. Maybe someone from the USTA is watching. Kathy Rinaldi and David Nick, and I think we're behind me. And Steve, Steve Weissman from Tennis Channel. And uh, this match was funny for a few different reasons. Like one, like one early in the match, it was Carlos Ramos, who is famous for calling the coaching violation on Serena um, yep. at the US Open. And yep. so in the second set, this guy gives the Brazilian Montero a soft warning for coaching. He says, tell your coach to stop coaching. And my guy, Steve, as he does, inserts himself in there. And he's like, wait, coaching? Soft warning? And the guy's like, yeah, I gave him a soft warning. And Steve's like, well, is it coaching or is it not coaching? And, right. uh, and Pascal's like, well, I'm just telling him, you know, no more coaching. And Steve's like, so my coach should get one free coaching. And he yells over. He's like, hey, Mark, you get one. You get one free one. <laughs> and then the guy's like, you know, he's like, no. No, <laughs> and in my mind i'm like this guy is like totally gun shy because he's you know after right. he got you know his hand slapped um but right. yeah, so, so that happened and then you know steve ended up coming back and winning this match 6-0 in the fifth which was crazy it was a crazy win and you know steve weissman's yelling like big first serve like in this empty stadium to steve like first serve big serve here and like after the match steve was like you know what do you think this guy like i was planning on missing my first serves and like you know hitting only second serves to win like uh, it was just, uh, it, it was a good one and to see a guy like who has, you know, I, I like when you break someone's spirit and when you win that third set or fifth set, like six, Oh, like that to me is like one of the best things in tennis. So I was really happy after that one. Very Ooh, happy. That's, that's <laughs> rough. Ooh, that's rough. Yeah. That's classic Steve to like be able to talk and narrate and joke and draw you out of a match and act like he doesn't care. And then he ended yeah. up just tearing, ripping your part. I remember last year, team tennis. You know, we're playing team tennis, right? I mean, look, it's not the French Open final, but it's still, right? And he's sitting there, he's talking to Brandon Nakashima. Hey, Brandon, you know, I was like out last night too late. And, you know, you know, I'm like not really feeling good. And da-da-da. I'm like, Brandon, don't look at that dude. He's full of shit. He's just trying to talk about your game. Trust me. 5-0. I'm like, Brandon, I suppose that's not right. It's not- yeah. And it is the same thing this year to Tommy and Donald. Like, yeah, you know. I mean, look, you know, we're like in number one, you guys don't have a shot to win. And he's talking with his like, you know, obnoxious beard, mustache, whatever. And it was like, guys, don't talk to that dude, right? <laughs> yeah. And then he just yeah, no, starts nobody to like- plays, Nobody plays like, possum wow. like him. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> so you also commentate, right? And I've, you know, over the past 18 months had an opportunity to do the same thing. How did you transition from that? Obviously I think your pedigree, right, allows you to sort of be able to articulate the game. Uh, your experience coaching people of different level allows you to, to like sort of dumb it down to a point 
that makes it easy to listen to on TV. How did you get into commentating? I, I know the moment that sort of led me to it, but I want to hear yours. <laughs> yeah, I just always was into it a little bit just because of what you said. Like, I felt like I could sort of narrate or, you know, articulate what, you know, what was happening on the court. And randomly, a few years ago at, the, at Wimbledon, I was coming off the practice court and I got a call from, I can't remember who called, maybe someone called me and said, hey, like the world feed at Wimbledon is looking for another commentator, someone that knows the American players, you know, could you fill in? And so, you know, I was like, okay, I don't have anything better to do today. Sure I can, you know. So I went and like I did like an on-camera hit with this dude uh, from, you know, the world feed, which I hadn't planned on doing. And then I ended up calling a match, which was, was actually Stevie was playing Nicholas Kicker, I think on court 12 at Wimbledon, like on the way back. And it, it was my first, you know, it's the first time I'd ever done it. And it was, you know, it was fun. I had the producer in my ear, like, you know, talking about, it's funny listening to the producers, man. They, like, they think tennis is so easy. Like, you know, like someone misses like a running backhand pass and the producer in my ear is like, man, he really made a mess out of that one. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like, it's a running backhand pass on grass. Like, it's not easy, you know, I'm thinking about right. it the whole time, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that was the first time I did it. And then I eventually listened to myself back and I thought it was terrible. And, um, but, but I, I sought out more opportunities to try to grow it. And then I just tried to make some more contacts through, throughout the game and, and look for opportunities to do it, which, you know, world team tennis gave me. And then I've had another couple opportunities with world feeds for different grand slams. And it's been fun. It's been fun trying to get better. And um, like same, same way that you would approach tennis or anything else, like, you know, which I'm sure you like feel the same way. It's about getting good reps and then getting good feedback and trying to implement it. And, and I, I've had a good time because the best thing is doesn't matter who wins or loses as long as the match is quick. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> you, exactly. You're probably like, all right, so this is over. I get to go home. So, Exactly. I hate to say that. Ooh, that sounded so bad. But I remember, um, sort of, I got into the company. I was in Charleston at a tournament, and we were at like you know the player dinner, sponsor dinner, whatever. And Bob Wiley was there, and I remember uh, giving him some critique or feedback, right, on, on Tennis Channel and all this other stuff. And then he was like, "Well, why don't you try it?" You know that kind of thing. <laughs> that that's sort of that's sort of how I got into it. So I I owe credit to Bob for like you know making me put my money where my mouth is and sort of step behind the camera and, and, and see if I can actually do it. Um, but I do find that it, it has helped. If you're not coaching, it does keep your skills sharp. It 100%. Does, yeah, it does like help you look at players you normally wouldn't, right? Yes. As a coach, you sort of, once your player gets top 25, you sort of keep tabs on top 25. And then you end up having to play somebody of like 90 in the world in first round and they actually can play. You're like, oh shit, I've actually never watched this girl. You know what I mean? Well, it sort of helps you expand sort of your familiarity with players throughout. You know what I mean? Yeah. And because you're, because you're talking about what's happening, I, I find that I can identify tactics much more clearly and much more quickly by talking through what's happening every point than I can if I'm just watching video of some player that, you know, we're going to play tomorrow and I know I'm going to watch two hours of video, like I can watch that in a very passive way, but watching a match actively because I'm, you know, talking about, you know, player X or whatever, I, I find myself with a much deeper understanding of, of how they play and of why they're doing what they're doing. Um, you know, after, after calling a match, I really, I find that um, pretty, pretty amazing actually. I, I didn't think it was going to be that way. Especially if you're the analyst and somebody else is like the color. Right. Yeah. Or the, the, the sort of the, you know, 
what do they call yeah, it? Yeah, it's a play-by-play, yeah. Play-by-play, and you're the analyst. Then you actually yeah. get the chance to educate and sort of have like a two-way sort of dialogue. It, it yeah. does give me a shot. So one of the things a lot of people don't know about you is also, you know, like myself, you got a foundation, you work with a bunch of kids. Tell me about the impetus behind First Break, right, and all the stuff you do with the kids in California. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's been something that we have done because tennis has taken our lives and like so myself and a couple of, uh, excuse me, a couple other people, we started this thing and, and tennis has just taken us to incredible places and given us incredible opportunities. And, you know, like I've been able to see places in the world or, you know, have these experiences that I don't, I don't know if I would have had otherwise. Um, and I want to pass that on to other people or I want to like open those doors potentially for other people. And, you know, we are here in the Carson community. We serve kids, you know, mostly from Carson, Compton, Gardenia and the surrounding areas. And we want to provide access to tennis. We want to help them, you know, with the education. We have a full-time tutor here who, you know, does the educational component of our program. But, you know, we obviously like the, the studies are, you know, there are endless, like, you know, kids who do sports, like stay in school longer, kids who do sports stay in school and have better grades longer. For us, like, if we can help these kids, you know, maybe this kid gets a chance to get into a private high school. Maybe this person is the first in their family to go to college, you know, et cetera, et cetera. These are things that can change the course of generations and, and families. And, um, you know, we want to, we want to change lives. And there have been some people who do it really well, like, like you guys, like College Park, there, there are a couple of programs out there that we see as kind of the like the north stars for what we're trying to do, and and we aspire to you know to be like programs like that where you know kids end up you know becoming if they want like really good players, really good students, and you know we we want to know that we've you know again helped change people's lives and made them you know made them champions off the court. Cool. All <laughs> right. So my last two questions: favorite tournament. And worst tournament. <laughs> worst tournament. Uh, worst tournament. That's easy. Uh, the uh, Wuhan for me. I, I never liked going there. Uh, when they changed the hotel, it actually got better. Uh, because, but the old, the old hotel, like in the middle of the city, was horrendous. Like I hated going there. It's like an hour bus ride in the beat up bus, like to the courts. I thought it was terrible. Best tournament for me, like. I mean, I love Indian Wells just because of the setup there. I actually, one thing I don't like about Indian Wells is being from Southern California, you know, especially people that had knew me as a kid, like I'll be on a practice court, you know, with whatever player like working and like someone will yell across the court. Some fan is walking by like, like hey, Mark, like, what's up, you know? And uh, <laughs> it's just not, it's not cool. It's not a good look. Um, but Indian Wells and I, I would say Charleston. All right. So my least favorite place i never have to go again hopefully nuremberg i've never been is it bad yeah it's just yeah you know it's just <laughs> yeah uh and in favorite i would definitely say french open yeah the french is my favorite slam for sure yeah. that's, french, that's french definitely open. up there have you been to strasbourg i have been to strasbourg that's one of my uh, favorites too i love strasbourg. really yeah it's, it's, i love it's it. not it's not near my top it's kind of down there with nuremberg i mean it's like you know it's like it's I love the town. Out. Like, I love the town. The hotel's decent. Like, I don't know. I really like that tournament. Um, I'm trying to think. There's, there's got to be one bad tournament that I like. 
I'm forgetting. Um, you don't feel like Strasbourg, you just count the days to French Open? I mean, it's like there's still a filler week to French Open. You don't feel like that? I feel uh, like- No, I love it. No, I love it there because I feel like I, you know, I know the town pretty well. Like, I don't know. I, there's good food, in my opinion. Um, there's definitely places that are fillers. Like, I think, uh, I think some of the grass weeks are, are not great, like prior to Wimbledon. Fill you up. know? Fill like, up. yeah, I mean... Yeah, there's some fillers there. The U.S. Open series, pretty good. I'm like post U.S. Open, like not great. Like in my mind, like I don't like I don't like the, any of the China tournaments. Um, yeah, no, I right? don't. Well, luck, lucky this year we won't be going. So good You ran out the China tournament. What What is your take on the Peng Shui situation? And B, is this an opportunity for? the tour to add tournaments back in the States where there's more marketing, more TV time, probably get more players, right? Just to, to actually want to play as opposed to looking at it like, I'm just here so I don't get fined kind of thing. Yeah. What is your whole <laughs> yeah. take on the situation? Yeah, well, I mean, China, obviously, I, I think like, yeah, like I stand for human rights and democracy. Like, or, I mean, even though China's not a democracy, I stand for human rights. And so, yeah, I think it was a no brainer what the WTA did. Like the question for me was, were they going to have the guts to do it? And Steve did. Uh, the, the ATP, I think, needs to follow suit. Uh, I think the Olympics, you know, for them to go there now, I think is unconscionable. I think they're going to do it because, you know, they're pretending they had the calls with her. So, you know, whatever. But yeah, it's an opportunity to, to rebuild that part of the schedule. And I've just never thought that the fall makes sense because you have this, you have this crescendo like in September, like the US Open. Like there's so much media attention. It's in New York, you know, you, especially this year, you had these incredible matches. And then all of a sudden the, the tour goes dark because matches, you know, for the U.S. media, matches are happening in the middle of the night in Asia. And it's like, oh, like tennis is still playing. Like what's going on? Like, I think there's a better way to capitalize on that, you know, on all that media attention and interest than the way the calendar is currently composed. So, yeah, I would love to see some tournaments back in the U.S. You'd see you know, people want to play like players will go where there's tournaments. And so I think you'll have people playing like San Diego was a new event this year for us. Like it was incredible. Like it was sold out, I think from qualities through the finals. I know, you, you know, Chicago people like raved about, you know, the events you had there. Like, I think it's a real opportunity to capitalize them. You know, we talk about not being able to build stars, like play where the media is and you'll build some stars, you know, not in the middle of the night in Asia against, you know, with nobody in the stands. Like that's terrible. Right. <laughs> <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, brother, um, I appreciate you taking the time to come on. Always fun. Um, I know I, I was with you at Team Tennis. I, I appreciate the position you in. You got to make everything exciting. Uh, oh, man, whenever your team played, I knew we were going to have an exciting match. And uh, I just wish we had you mic'd up during the match more. Oh, no, let me tell you, I might not have a job. If, if I was <laughs> mic'd up during the match more, you know, my, my conversation is not for TV. You know that. <laughs> Never. <laughs> that's why that's why i wanted the mic on you i know <laughs> i know especially with three matches that we lose on the last point oh uh, man that beginning that beginning first week for you guys was brutal 
Well, we went from almost last that we should have been first. I mean, we could have yeah. been number one in the league had yeah. two or three of those gone our way. But, you know, that's just sort of how it goes. But it, it was always fun. It was good to have. Like, that was my first time being on the court with TP, my first time yeah. being on the court with Donald. And hey, Donald has the best overhead in tennis, I think. By, you know, it's funny you say that. Me and Sloan were like, man, who, where did you get that overhead from? You, you, <laughs> you never hear somebody talk about how good a professional's overhead is because you take it for granted. But people yeah. don't know that's just hard. Like you could blow an overhead, right? And that boy has the best overhead from anywhere in the court in the history of this guy. I mean, he'd be on the baseline. Yeah. Overhead. It's amazing. He's automatic. It's automatic. Hey, Stevie said it at some tournament this year, and I thought he was full of shit, you know. And then I started watching and started paying attention over the course of the year. And then all team tennis. And, and like, yeah, Donald is just it's out of this world. Dude, Steve, Stevie, Stevie was playing him. And Stevie, like, put up a lob. You know how Stevie, like, a, an obnoxious lob, right, out of the stadium that bounces in. And then Donald cracks the overhead winner from the baseline. And Stevie said, yeah, I mean, whatever. Everybody knows he's got the best overhead since he was 14. You got to be able to, like, <laughs> I was like, you, I mean, that dude, you, you are right. The best overhead. But it was a good two weeks. And yeah, you don't you don't want me mic'd up. You you want the you league. Need, you need to have you need to have Nick in the mixed doubles, man. Oh, yeah, no, I think we were good with Donald and McDonald. <laughs> I, I love him, but look, you can't you can't on one hand say Donald Young got the best overhead, then say I got to something out for Nick Monroe. I mean, come on, that's you know. <laughs> no, yeah, no matter what happened, Donald Young was number one in the world, and aside from the overhead, yeah. he does have some of the best hands in the history of the game. Yeah, bar none. Bar none, that boy has some of the, the most gifted hands in the history of the game. So, you know, with those two things, overhead and the hands, you got to play them in mix. You, you had a fun team to watch. I really liked watching the Chicago matches. That was really, that was a good time. It was fun watching us lose all those sudden death matches. Um, <laughs> and, and, and then the bad part about Palm Springs is the bar was closed by the time we lost. So I couldn't go drink, <laughs> I couldn't go drink away the pain. I just had to go sit in my room and, you know, eat some In-N-Out burger <laughs> and milk cake. <laughs> sometimes that's just as good after that loss. Sometimes that burger is just as good. <laughs> oh, man. Well, man, I appreciate you uh, for taking the time to be with us. Always good to catch up with you. And uh, we'll get a chance to talk to you soon. All right, bud. Thanks for having me. It's a good time come out. All right. Thanks, brother.